When a popular Akron doctor was gunned down in a parking lot, there were only a few suspects and the evidence was largely circumstantial. But after a conviction was won, the one piece of forensic evidence, a bite mark, became the controversial center of a decades-long appeals battle. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crimelines. Welcome if you are new. If you're new, you can subscribe or follow Crimelines in your favorite podcast app. You will then know when I upload. I have some listeners who listen to everything I release. You know who you are and thank you. And I have others who pop in and listen depending on what case I'm covering. Also, thank you. The best way to know what content I'm putting out is to subscribe or follow, depending on what your app tells you to do. And while you're in the mood of hitting subscribe buttons, I do have a YouTube channel. You just search for Crime Lines True Crime over there. The cases I do on YouTube are different from what I'm doing here. So you're basically getting two to three episodes a week from me between the two platforms. So let's go ahead and jump into this week's case. This was suggested by Brianna, and I want to thank her for sending it over since it does have some complexities that I think are important to publicize. I say this a lot, that this is not CSI, this is not law and order. Real life evidence isn't always so cut and dry, and we are going to be getting into that. At the center of this case is Margot Prade. By 1997, 41-year-old Margot had built a thriving practice in Akron, Ohio. She had, over the years, seen around 7,000 patients. She was a single mom to her two daughters, having separated from her husband of 18 years, Doug, in December 1996. Margot had been with Doug pretty much her entire adult life. She met him when she was around 18, and he was 28. A few years later, in 1979, at the ages of 23 and 33, Margot and Doug married. Margot had always been an excellent student, and it was no surprise to anyone when she went to medical school, which was a plan she first stated she had when she was only three years old. Doug worked as a police officer while Margot finished her education. In 1985, they had their first daughter, and then three years later, they had their second daughter. In 1986, the couple were new parents, and Margot had started work as a doctor. This same year, Doug was promoted to sergeant with the Akron police. He would later become a captain in 1989, But these promotions had shifted his schedule. He became a supervisor on the overnight shift. So we're talking 7.30 at night to 7.30 in the morning. While Margot was working similar long 10 to 12 hour days as a doctor, but hers were during the day. So they were pretty much never seeing each other. And this led to a breakdown in their marriage. They talked about divorce over the years, but it wasn't until April 1997 that they were finally at the other side of things. They had agreed to separate, they had their divorce finalized, custody had been agreed upon, and they were moving forward. 
The girls lived with Margot in the family home, but Doug had full access to them. They took turns taking the girls to and from activities depending on their work schedules, and with these opposite work schedules finally being useful, it worked out pretty well. One parent was pretty much always available. And both had rebounded to some degree. Doug was dating a fellow officer, which was a relationship that, to be completely transparent, began during the marriage. And Margot and her boyfriend were discussing getting married. On November 26th, 1997, Margot dropped her girls off at school and arrived at 8 a.m. at the Akron General Medical Center for some meetings. At 8.50, she called her office from her car phone to let them know that she was done at the medical center and she was on her way in to see patients. She also called her mother from the car to finalize some Thanksgiving plans, which Thanksgiving was the next day. About 20 minutes after Margot should have arrived at her office, her office manager Joyce assumed she must have gotten stuck in traffic. Or maybe she got sidetracked. Margot wasn't known for being the most punctual person. But then an hour later, she still wasn't in. And Joyce was worried that something happened, like Margot had been called away on an emergency. Margot's medical assistant, Lori, went out on a smoke break around 10.25. After a bit, she decided she wanted to grab a soda out of her car and noticed that Margot's van was actually in the parking lot, and it looked empty. Lori went up to the van, and when she got close enough to look in the window, she could see that Margot was actually in the van. She was slumped over towards the passenger seat. Lori saw blood and ran inside immediately to have someone call 911. The call went in at 10.36 a.m. Lori then returned to the van and checked for a pulse. There was none. When paramedics arrived, they knew it was too late. Margot prayed the well-loved doctor had been shot to death in her office parking lot. Somehow a rumor got started very early on that this was a suicide, which is odd because it was never suspected to be one. Margot had been shot six times with a high-caliber weapon that was not found at the scene. She was likely dead shortly after the second shot, and no one ever suspected that this was a suicide. The gun would actually never be found, but it is believed to have been a thirty-eight, and a ballistics expert said he thought it was a Rossi. Two of the shots had gone through Margot's hands, indicating she put her hands up to protect herself. The shot to her head would have rendered her unconscious, and the next shot through her heart would have been almost instantly fatal. The last shots were fired as the person pulled her forward in the seat, ripping off the two buttons of her lab coat. I can only imagine the what-ifs that ran through Joyce and Lori's heads. What if they went to the parking lot sooner? What if they looked for Margot sooner? But even if they found her two seconds after the shooting, it would have still been too late. This happened 
far too quickly. There were signs that Margot had struggled with her killer. There were the buttons on her lab coat that had been pulled off, and her tennis bracelet was found broken on the ground outside the passenger side door. With jewelry yanked off, it almost looked like a potential robbery gone wrong, except the killer left the bracelet behind and also didn't attempt to take anything else that was in plain view, like Margot's car phone or her purse. Another sign there was a struggle was an injury Margot had. It was a bite mark to her upper left arm. The police initially thought it was just a bruise, but the medical examiner recognized that this was a bite mark. Checking Margot's lab coat that she was wearing, they saw the impression in the fabric as well. Blood had pooled in the little indents, which is why the police are confident that the bite happened during the brief fight prior to the shooting. It seems likely that Margot and the shooter fought over the gun a little bit and the person bit Margot. The person who bit her was the person who killed her, bottom line. With the police in the parking lot, just after 11 a.m., an unmarked Akron police car drove up. Captain Doug Prade got out, and he was told Margot was dead. His knees buckled, so the other officers had to grab him and get him inside where he could sit down. Doug had been the first Black captain in the history of Akron, and many thought he was on the path to becoming chief one day. Like Margot, he was well-liked and well-respected, so it was a little awkward to have the homicide detectives, who were of lower rank, interview a high-profile superior. But as the ex-husband, obviously, he had to be talked to. Doug said in that first interview that happened at the scene that he and Margot had an amicable divorce as far as divorces go. They still talked regularly to coordinate the schedules with the kids and their activities, and they were just in general friendly with each other. Doug did know that Margot had a new boyfriend named Tim, but he didn't know a lot about him, and that was definitely someone the police wanted to talk to. Current partners and ex-partners are always at the top of the list, so as awkward as this entire conversation was, they had to ask Doug for his alibi that morning. He said he was in his condo during the early morning hours. He watched the news a little bit, and then he called in some information to the police chief about a case. That call would later be confirmed, and it happened around 8 a.m. Then Doug did some housework and went downstairs to work out at the condo complex's gym. He said he planned to be there for about two hours. There were two other people who lived in the complex who came in and out while he was there, and they could verify these snapshots of his alibi. Around 11 a.m., he got a call from his girlfriend, Carla, who had heard there was a shooting at Margot's office. Doug immediately got into his unmarked police car and went right to the scene. He didn't mention having changed clothes or anything like that, but the 
Officers interviewing Doug did notice that his clothes, while they were workout clothes, had no sweat on them. He didn't look or, frankly, smell like someone who had been working out for nearly two hours. But this is a subjective type of clue. Maybe Doug just left out the part about getting changed because he didn't think about it in his emotional state. Maybe he was just someone who didn't sweat a lot. Doug's alibi could easily be checked since people saw him that morning during the time frame the murder occurred. The exact time of death would be determined later, but at this point, when they're talking to Doug, all they really knew was that it was between 9 a.m. when the car phone was last used and 10.30 when Lori went to go get a soda. But since Margot hadn't gotten out of her car, they assumed whatever happened must have happened when she arrived, and she was ambushed, putting it much closer to 9 a.m. And this would prove correct. One of the officers at the scene noticed there was a car dealership next to the medical office. A closer look showed what all car dealerships have, which are several outdoor security cameras. They pulled the footage for the camera that pointed in the direction of Margot's office parking lot, and in the far reach of the camera lens, they could see, sort of, the murder take place. Due to the distance and the camera quality, details like what the killer looked like don't exist. What can be seen is a light-colored car pulling into the parking lot and sitting there for about five minutes. No one got out, and then as Margot's minivan pulled in, the car looked like it was leaving, except it instead followed Margot's van. It then parked a short distance from where Margot parked. The person in the car, a shadowy figure at best on this camera, got out of their car and walked over to the van. At 9.10 a.m., the person entered the van on the passenger side, stayed there for about 90 seconds, and then exited. They got into their car and they drove off. The police now know, based on this surveillance camera, that the murder happened between 9.10 and 9.12 in the morning. But that's about all they can get from the video. It was sent to the U.S. Secret Service to try to clean it up a bit, but not even the make and model of the other car can be clearly discerned. The best bit of evidence they had to identify the killer seemed to be that bite mark. In the late 1990s, mixed DNA samples were hard to separate in situations where there was a lot of one person's DNA and only a small amount of someone else's. So when everything was covered in Margot's blood, finding someone else's profile in it would be nearly impossible. But saliva has a lot of DNA in it, and when people bite, they often leave saliva behind. Unfortunately, the enzyme test to check for saliva came back negative where that bite mark was on the jacket. 
Whoever bit Margot did not leave much, if any, saliva behind. So the police focused on matching the bite mark impression, a science that has largely been debunked today. Some experts who used to perform this type of analysis for bite marks refuse to do it anymore. In 2015, two forensic odontologists noticed how many wrongful convictions included bite mark analysis. They performed a study that, very briefly put, sent packets out to certified forensic odontologists. Not your average dentist. They chose specifically certified experts who were qualified to testify in court. The packet included sets of bite marks, and the odontologists were asked to answer a few questions. These were basic questions like, is this a bite mark? In the majority of the cases, there was not consensus as to if they were even looking at a bite mark or just looking at a bruise. Some were saying that this picture was a bite mark, some said it was a bruise, some said they weren't sure. And if the experts aren't even sure that what they're looking at is a bite mark, how can we move any further with this as a science, as an analysis, as a way to match someone to a mark? Bite mark analysis is allowed to be used in court. But today, we have a lot more information that the defense teams can use to argue against it. In the late 1990s, there was some evidence that bite mark analysis may not be this perfect forensic science, but not nearly as much as we have now. So the Akron police were banking on bite mark analysis to match the bite to the killer. They took casts of everyone. Margot may have had some contact with. Everyone in the medical office, Doug prayed the ex-husband, Carla, the new girlfriend, and Tim, the new boyfriend. The process was to first send the impressions to a local dentist who just looked to exclude people. Anyone he could easily exclude from being the source of the bite mark were set aside, and anyone he could not easily exclude were then sent to the expert for deeper analysis. This was an ongoing process throughout the investigation. And as someone new would come on the radar, they would get their imprint and send it off. And one person who came on the radar was a woman named Del Gilbert. And it wasn't just her. It was her and her husband. A week after the murder, an anonymous letter was sent to the police claiming that Del had killed Margot and her husband, Ed, was going to help her flee the country. The motive, according to this letter, was jealousy. Del had set Margot up with her boyfriend, Tim, And Del was jealous of the relationship because she was also in a relationship with Tim. I mean, I'm not sure why she would have set them up if she didn't want them to be together, but logic isn't always a strong part in a defamation case. 
So the police are investigating Dell and also Ed, and they take their teeth imprints, just like they did with everyone else. On the side of the police, from an investigative standpoint, this was just another lead, another tip to follow up on. However, word got out that they were interviewed, and then before you know it, flyers started popping up under windshields accusing Dell of murdering Margot. In early January, a local radio station had a call-in segment of their talk show to discuss the murder case. Multiple people called in and named Dell and Ed on air as murderers. The rumors and the gossip, which was completely made up, really started affecting their lives. Ed was an attorney. He dealt with call after call from clients, wondering if they needed a new attorney, since apparently theirs was a murderer who was headed to jail. It only got worse when in late January, the rumor ramped up that they had actually been arrested. Another local attorney named John Sharp made and distributed flyers claiming Dell had been arrested. One flyer was even left at Margot Prade's 71-year-old mother's house. Sharp told the Akron Beacon Journal that he thought he had insider information. He thought it was true, but that the police told him it wasn't, and he needed to take the flyers down. Ed sent the radio station that was airing these rumors a cease and desist especially after a DJ said, where there's smoke, there's fire, in relation to these accusations. After the cease and desist, the station stopped saying the names, but they kept saying things like a prominent Black attorney or the wife of, so everyone knew who they were talking about. And that's important when it comes to defamation. Not saying names doesn't mean you aren't defaming someone. If a reasonable person can deduce who you're talking about, it can still be defamation. And the police department worried that there was a defamation suit coming their way if the Gilberts held them responsible for their names being leaked. It wouldn't be the first time Ed sued the city. He was the attorney on a lawsuit against the police department. As a civil rights attorney, he sued on behalf of a patrolman who argued the promotional system within the police force was discriminatory. The client was none other than Doug Prade. They won the lawsuit, and Doug was promoted to sergeant in 1986. None of the rumors linking Dell and Ed to the murder, which I want to repeat, were completely made up. None of them link it back to this case with Doug Prade. That seems to just be incidental. Ed and Dell did not sue the police department, but they did sue the radio station for defamation, which is civil law and it's not exactly what we do here. The suit ended years later with the parties agreeing to dismiss it and the radio station covering all legal fees. I definitely think the defamation case is really interesting if you're a journalist and you cover events of a public interest nature. 
as well as public figures, because a lot of that comes into play here. But like I said, it's not what we do here. And this defamation case is very likely why the episode of The Devil Speaks that covered Margot's murder case changed Ed and Dell's names. Their last name is Gilbert, and the show changed it to Sullivan, so it's kind of nice to see that they employ some musical theater lovers there. It doesn't sound like the police took the letter or the accusations as evidence. They followed up on it, but the letter sounded like someone possibly trying to throw the investigation off track, or it was a personal grudge against the Gilberts. It was a complete red herring and waste of police resources. There were other tips that came in saying that this was actually a revenge killing. There was a bank robber who Doug had arrested who just so happened to be released from prison the day before the murder. A caller said there was a social worker in Akron who looked a lot like Margot and had removed children from a home right before the murder. Maybe she was the intended target. But this certainly did not seem likely to be a case of mistaken identity. This person drove to Margot's workplace and waited for her. They spent 90 seconds in her vehicle. She had to have been the target. And this was someone who knew her schedule and took advantage of this very short window when she would be alone in that parking lot. So the police were looking at people who knew Margot well, like her ex, and they did follow up on Doug's alibi. Only one of the two people in the gym that morning was identified, and it was a woman named Kathleen. Two days after the murder, Doug went to her and explained what had happened. So she went to the police voluntarily to give her timeline of the morning. Kathleen doesn't really know Doug except in passing at the apartment complex, so she really has no horse in this race, no reason to lie. Kathleen said she worked at a restaurant, so she didn't go in until 11, so she usually worked out in the morning starting around 8.30 for 30 minutes. She said that Doug showed up about 10 minutes after she was there and was still working out when she left around 9. It was a six-minute drive from the condo to the parking lot, so even if Doug left the second Kathleen left the gym, he still couldn't get to the crime scene in time to be the car that was waiting for Margot, because remember, that car got there at least five minutes before Margot did. In addition to that, Doug took and passed a polygraph two days after the murder. Not that a polygraph is everything, many of us think it's nothing, but we have it plus an alibi. Add in that Doug didn't have a light-colored car or known access to one, like is seen on the security footage. It was announced on November 29th, just days after the murder, that Doug was cleared of involvement. They also were able to rule out Doug's girlfriend, Carla. She worked for the police department on the court side of things. Witnesses said that she did leave her post for about an hour that morning, which looked kind of suspicious. 
but a closer look showed that she actually was transporting prisoners between the jail and the court during that window. So she absolutely could not have been the one in the parking lot. So that leaves the boyfriend, Tim, to follow up on. Tim was an attorney in Columbus, which is nearly two hours away from Akron. He was found to have been at work that morning. They took his teeth imprint anyway, just in case. But again, he was two hours away the entire day. Tim did give the police some more information about Margot and what was going on in her life around the time of her murder. He said that they had only been dating around five months, but they still had decided to get married while they were away for the weekend, just a couple of days before. In fact, they were going to announce the engagement to Margot's family at Thanksgiving dinner. But the most important thing that Tim said to the police was something they were hearing a few comments about from other people, that Margot and Doug's divorce was not as amicable as he made it out to be. In fact, Margot wanted to go back to court. Two things happened that caused this. One, Margot's children came home from a visit with Doug very upset. They said Doug was threatening to leave them and start a new life with his girlfriend and that she and her son were going to become his new family. After that incident, Margot called her attorney and they discussed whether they should stop doing this full joint, full access custody arrangement and switch to Margot having full-time custody with Doug having less time with the girls with having scheduled visits. Her attorney sent her a letter going over what they discussed and telling her that the filing fee to go into court would be $75. The letter was sent on November 20th, six days before the murder. Shortly after the phone call about going back to court, Tim and Margo went to Las Vegas. That was the trip when they got engaged. Doug stayed in the house with the kids rather than taking them to his apartment, which is what they had actually agreed he would do. Because the breakup was not amicable and Margot believed Doug was violating boundaries, she was upset about this. He had gone into the house before when he wasn't supposed to be there and had even gone through her mail on multiple occasions. Margot felt... Doug was using his unlimited visits with the girls as an excuse to have access to her house and to go through her things. Between this and then the kids being upset about the other things he said, she was pretty set on going to court to change custody. She also intended to ask for additional child support to reflect the additional amount of time she would have the kids. But Tim gave Margot the advice lawyers often give, do what you can to resolve this out of court. He suggested Margot meet with Doug and see if they could talk it out, see if she could get him to finally agree to just stay out of the house and out of her business. 
So according to Tim, Margot had set a time to meet Doug for November 25th, 1997, the day before the murder. It's not clear if this meeting ever happened, but when Margot was murdered, she had a check to her attorney dated on the 25th, and it was for $75, the exact amount for that filing fee. So meeting or not, it looked like Margot had made a decision to move forward in court to both strip Doug of some of his access to the kids and increase child support. To find out if this was what Margot was wanting to do and get more details on the divorce, they did speak with Margot's divorce attorney, and she had a lot to say. In early January 1997, shortly after Margot filed for divorce, her attorney sent Doug a settlement proposal. He asked for a meeting between the three of them. Doug did not hire an attorney, so he was essentially representing himself. According to Margot's attorney, Doug was upset at this meeting. He accused Margot of sleeping around. He referred to her as a slut and worse. He said he wanted to hire an attorney for the divorce, but the reason he couldn't was that he spent thousands of dollars on a private investigator to follow Margot around. Margot had gone to Atlanta with a man she was dating, and Doug had the PI follow her around while she was there, because at the time, they were still married and living together. According to Doug, it was her behavior with men that made her unfit as a parent. He wanted full custody and to have the kids taken from Margot. He had no comment on his affair making him unfit, just Margot's. Doug argued that not only should he get custody of the kids, he should get the family home and spousal support since her salary as a doctor was quite a bit more than his as a police officer. And while Doug went on this monologue of complaints against her, Margot just sat there quietly. Clearly, Doug was emotional at this point, but it's not clear how much of this was all that deep and how much was just venting, because he didn't follow through on any of his demands. He ended up disengaging from the divorce process entirely. He didn't sign any papers. He didn't file any of his own. He didn't contest anything. He literally just kept going as nothing happened. Doug's friends didn't even know he was going through a divorce. When the hearing to make everything final was held in April 1997, Doug didn't even attend. He continued to live in the family home. According to Doug, this is actually just evidence of how amicable things were. Sure, he got upset at first, but that's a normal reaction. He vented. He got over it, and then he moved on. He didn't file anything because he wasn't contesting anything. But the story Margot had told friends and family didn't match this. Margot didn't actually want him to keep living in the house after she filed for divorce. She would bring it up to Doug that he needed to start looking for his own place, and he just 
wouldn't. Eventually, her attorney sent a letter telling him that he had to leave or they were going to have to pursue legal action. So in June 1997, Doug moved into his apartment. Margot changed the locks and installed a security system to keep Doug from coming over when she wasn't there. But Doug got a key to the house and the alarm code from one of the daughters. He would show up, he would go through her mail, eat some food, and just make it clear that he was around. A babysitter for the girl said that after Doug moved out, he would regularly call while she was babysitting and ask where did Margo go, who was she with, and all of that stuff. And Margo had told the babysitter specifically to not tell him. There were two people at the medical office in the summer and fall of 1997 who said they saw a police car consistent with Doug's assigned unit parked across from Margot's office. Joyce, the office manager, said she was told by security that someone matching Doug's description was in the office building looking around in the overnight hours, times when Margot wasn't there and when Doug was supposed to be working. In late October or early November, about a month, three weeks to a month before the murder, a housekeeper at the medical center overheard Margot and Doug arguing. In short, what the police were hearing from Margot's friends and family was that Margot perceived Doug as harassing her. But just because Doug tried to gloss over this and put a different spin on it didn't mean he killed Margot. It just meant he didn't want the police who were his co-workers and friends, and in some cases his subordinates, to know that he was possibly stalking and or harassing his ex-wife. Though the police department said Doug was cleared early on, the investigation was leading them to question this. Due to the nature of investigating a fellow officer, the detectives assigned to the case were not allowed to discuss it with any other officers. They had to take their entire case files with them every time they left the office. This was an unusual procedure, but it was necessary to the integrity of the investigation. The search warrants in the case were filed under seal in another attempt to keep the details of the investigation from being leaked. But when they were unsealed, we learned that several warrants were executed. They included a search of Margot's home and office, Doug's storage unit, his locker at work, his girlfriend Carla's home, and a storage unit that she rented. They did not get a warrant to search Doug's condo because he gave consent for that. Doug had moved into Margot's home after the murder so that he could take care of the kids, so he was living there when the search of her home took place. The police were looking for anything like phone records or paperwork or letters to indicate a motive. Was there a disgruntled patient threatening her or an ex harassing her. 
In the garage, they found a cassette player with a phone jack. It could be plugged into the phone line, and it was sound activated. So anyone who made or answered a call in the house would have their call recorded. They asked Doug if he knew anything about this machine taping phone calls, and he said he had purchased it and installed it at Margot's request back in October 1994. Margot had patients who called her at home, and she wanted to record the calls for the sake of record-keeping, in part due to a fear of malpractice lawsuits. The explanation made sense on the surface, but then why was the tape recorder tucked away in the garage where it wasn't immediately visible? Why wouldn't Margot have put it somewhere more accessible? for the sake of changing out tapes. And then the police learned that Margot did not record her calls at the office, which was where the vast majority of her patients would call her. If she wanted documented proof of what was said on phone calls with a patient out of fear of a lawsuit, why wouldn't she tape all of her calls? So that didn't make sense. What also didn't make sense was that additional tapes of phone calls were found on the search of Doug's storage unit and his locker at work. If these were recorded for Margot's purposes, why did Doug have them? In listening to the tapes, the police realized they covered two years from October 1994 until December 1996 right around the time Margot filed for divorce. It was obvious Margot did not know she was being recorded. She spoke openly about personal parts of her life, including how she suspected that Doug and Carla were having an affair. In one of the later recordings, Margot was heard telling her niece that she thought Doug had tapped the phone somehow. She said the two of them had been in an argument about the timeline of their separation and divorce, and Doug accused her of wanting to speed things up to be with her fireman boyfriend. Margot was dating a fireman at the time. She had not told Doug. So she was saying to her niece, how could he know about this unless he tapped the phone and was listening in? If Margot knew she was being recorded because she was doing it herself, there would have been no reason for her to question if she was being recorded. There are other tapes that showed Margot did fear that there was a potential for violence on Doug's side. Telling her mother about one time he got in her face, he was yelling at her, and she had to tell him to back off. So many friends told her to go to the police about his threats and his harassment, but Margot didn't want him to get in trouble at work. One friend warned her that the real concern was that Doug would do something and his cop friends would cover up for him. But Margot said she just wanted Doug to leave her alone. She didn't want him to lose his career over it. So that covers the searches of Margot's home and office, as well as Doug's places. The tapes were the big find here. 
The other search warrants were on Carla's home and storage unit. And Carla's home is where they found another big find. They found some of Doug's financial papers. They took them back to the police department and found that Doug had been struggling since the divorce. Margot made around twice what Doug made. So when he moved out of the house and had to live off of just his salary, it was an immediate drop in lifestyle. Not only that, he now had to pay rent and child support. It wasn't just child support to Margot either. Early on in their marriage, Doug had an affair, which produced a child who he was also supporting. Doug had about $9,000 in his bank account at the time he moved out. Five or six months later, at the time of the murder, he only had about $1,000. And in that time, he had bounced a few checks. He had his account go negative a few times before his paycheck hit. And generally, he went from having a cushion to barely making it paycheck to paycheck. And one rather incriminating piece of evidence in all of these financial documents was a bank deposit slip dated October 8th, 1997. On the back of it, all of Doug's debts were tallied and then subtracted from the number 75,000. That number was incredibly important. That was the amount of money Doug received through a life insurance policy on Margot. The policy had been purchased years before, and it was a term life insurance policy, meaning it would eventually expire. Margot had named Doug the beneficiary, and the expiration on this policy was February 1998, three months after the murder. Had Margot survived past this, the policy would have expired and Doug would collect nothing if she predeceased him. But since she died before February 1998, he collected. But just because the debts were tallied on a deposit slip that was dated before the murder doesn't mean that's when he wrote it. And that is Doug's defense to this. He used the slip of scrap paper after learning he was going to collect the life insurance to figure out how many debts he could pay off with it. The paper was just laying around. And this is the thing with the evidence against Doug. He had an explanation for all of it, mostly reasonable explanations, even if they were contradicted by other people. It was often he said, she said. He said the divorce was amicable. Her friend said it wasn't. He said Margot Noosh is being recorded. Her family said she didn't. That was a lot of this evidence, but it was piling up. So the investigators decided they needed to look a little bit closer at things and re-interview some witnesses. One of the people they really wanted to talk to was Doug's alibi witness, Kathleen, who was now not 100% sure what time she went to the gym. She actually had two routines that she alternated that would have her at the gym at different times. It was possible that she had gone to the gym later, closer to 9.30, building the theory that Doug could have committed the murder 
gone back to his apartment, showered and changed very quickly, and then disposed of evidence before going to the gym. He stayed there long enough for people to see him who could later alibi him. They also re-interviewed everyone at the medical office on the day of the murder. One witness was named Howard, and he had been interviewed twice before this, and now he changed his story. He said he was coming out of the office building at about 9.10 a.m. to wait for his ride home. He saw a car go by, and he saw the driver. He picked Doug out of a photo array. Howard said he didn't say anything earlier because he knew the victim's ex was a police officer and he didn't want to get involved. But this does give me pause because he knew enough to know that Doug was a police officer, so had he also seen a picture of him in the news before seeing the photo array? Did he already know what he looked like? Because that would make the lineup essentially worthless. But in spite of any questions we may have on Howard's new story, it was really the bite mark evidence that came back from the expert on February 16, 1998, that would seal the deal on this arrest. Everyone had been excluded except Doug Prade. The case was presented to the DA, and they spent a few days going over the evidence and the certainty of the expert. On February 23, 1998, an arrest warrant was issued for Doug Prade, and he turned himself in. The trial was held in September 1998. The defense had fought to get the testimony of stalking and harassing tossed out because a lot of it was, according to them, irrelevant hearsay. Most of the stories were, Margot told me that this happened. But a lot of it was allowed in, particularly what was evidenced on the recorded phone calls, and the state had included wiretapping charges in the complaint. The forensic evidence in this case was that bite mark evidence. DNA had failed. Even though Margot's mother said she saw Doug have a scratch on his chin the day after the murder, his DNA was not found under her fingernails. And like I said, they found no saliva at the spot of the bite mark. Two dental experts testified for the state. One pretty much said 100% that Doug Prade was the source of the bite mark. The other was less sure because he said he didn't know that bite marks were a unique signature that could only point to one person. It's possible multiple people have the same bite. Multiple people who knew Margot prayed and had a reason to kill her? Probably not, but he couldn't rule it out entirely. The rest of the case was circumstantial. A number of Margot's friends and family testified about Margot being afraid of Doug, wanting him to leave her alone, and just the general nature of their relationship. The eyewitness I talked about earlier, Howard, he testified, and so did someone who worked at the dealership next door. And the guy who worked at the dealership was a little odd of a witness. I don't know if I was the prosecutor that I would have used him, not that I'm an expert on this, but he came forward shortly before the trial, basically saying that Doug was at the dealership as early as 8 a.m., 
Except we know he wasn't because he called the station from his condo and we have that time documented. The dealership also has cameras everywhere and they pulled the security footage from the dealership and Doug was nowhere on that footage. And also, the witness waited several months to come forward. So I don't know why he was even put on the stand, except maybe to make it look like they had more witnesses than they did. I feel like the cross-examination pretty much completely dismantled what he said. Some of the recorded calls were played for the jury, and these had a huge impact. It made it clear Margot did not know she was being recorded. She talked way too freely. And there was also the impression that Doug knew Margot wasn't going to hear the tapes because he was heard on a phone call to his girlfriend saying that he loved her. And that was a relationship that at the time the recording was made, he was still trying to keep secret. The defense did call Doug's alibi witness, Kathleen, as expected, and she testified that she was there from 8.30 to 9. And then on cross, she did admit that it was possible she went there at 9.30 instead. But Kathleen said she would rather rely on her earliest statement to the police rather than her memories 10 months later, which is fair and something I wish more witnesses would do. Recognize that what you remembered two days later is generally going to be the most accurate. While it is possible she went later, she trusted her memory from November best. The defense also called a counterwitness to Howard. They called his sister to the stand. She was the one giving him a ride, and she contradicted what Howard said. She said she was pulling up to get her brother when she heard a bang and two cars take off out of the parking lot. She said Howard was not outside the building at this time. So, if Howard saw a car drive by, he was looking at the person through the window inside the building and also through the car window and at a distance. It's very unlikely he could have seen any driver clear enough to identify him. And of course, this wouldn't be a case if we didn't have a competing expert come in. The defense dental expert said that Doug did not match the bite. And not only that, it was actually impossible for Doug to have left that bite mark at all. Doug had upper dentures, and they were not properly fitted. They were too loose. He also had a severe jaw misalignment. So if Doug bit anyone, his lower teeth would have left marks but his dentures on the top would have been pushed back in his mouth, leaving hardly any mark. And that's what happened when they tried to take casts of Doug's teeth. He couldn't bite in all the way to get his top teeth to go in. The imprint on the top was less than two millimeters deep. In the photos of the bite mark, the lower teeth marks are more visible than the upper, So that sounds like it aligns with what the defense expert said would have happened because of the dentures, but we have to add in the alignment issues. The lower teeth marks would not be that visible either because there wouldn't be the right amount of counterforce from the top. 
Doug simply, in short, could not have made that injury because he just can't physically bite that hard. The defense also had an expert testify that the shooter was right-handed while Doug was left-handed, but he's a police officer. In Akron, and as far as I know, most police departments, to qualify, you have to be able to shoot with each hand. Doug passed on his right hand. I mean, his score wasn't great. It certainly was a lot lower than his dominant hand, which is not uncommon. But the shooting exam is at 25 yards away. Marco was shot at close range, inches away. Something pretty much anyone could have managed with their non-dominant hand, let alone someone who has specifically trained to be able to shoot with both hands. Doug took the stand in his own defense, and the jury heard more about his point of view on his relationship with Margot. Rather than the divorce being a devastating blow to him, Doug said it was a long time coming. Things went downhill after they started working different shifts when he was promoted. Margot was working long hours, and Doug was working long hours, just opposite. With two young children filling their spare time, they had no time for each other. In 1991, they discussed divorce for the first time. They opted to try counseling, but less than two years later, they were back in the same spot. But then they experienced an awful tragedy. Doug's son from a previous marriage, Prescott, was a college student at the University of Akron. He was at a nightclub in February 1993 when a fight broke out. As he tried to get out of the nightclub to get clear of the brawl, shots were fired and he was killed at only 21 years old. In the aftermath of Prescott's death, Margot and Doug put talk of divorce on the back burner, but nothing really changed in the marriage. It wasn't long after this that Doug began his affair with Carla. By 1996, the couple were staying together for their children and were both discreetly seeing other people. Doug said the final breakdown of the marriage was emotional. They had been married for 18 years, but together for 22. But he said he didn't contest the divorce because it was amicable and he felt the agreement Margot and her attorney drew up was fair. And Doug stuck with his story that things were friendly between them after that. They spoke to coordinate schedules with the kids, and they just had no major issues. And he still insisted the tape recorder was Margot's idea. The reason the recording stopped when it did had nothing to do with Margot catching on. Doug said the device stopped working, and with Margot's knowledge, He took it to get it fixed, but then he just never got around to it. Honestly, I think Doug's insistence on sticking to this story that everything was sunshine and roses between him and Margot hurt his credibility because it was pretty obviously not true. There was enough evidence on those tapes from things Margot told her friends and family, from things other people witnessed, that it was not true, and this hurt his credibility he would have been better off saying, yeah, I was acting like a jerk, but that doesn't mean I killed her. That's my opinion. I do not think he should have stuck with this Sunshine and Roses story, but he did. 
the debt calculations on the back of the deposit slip came up, and Doug insisted. He did that after he learned he was going to collect the insurance money, and he said that wasn't until January. But on cross-examination, the state pointed out that the debts were not accurate to where they were in January. For an example, he wrote that he owed $240 to K Jewelers, but he only owed $122 in January, indicating that the calculation was written earlier when he did owe more. Now, the defense did what they could to poke holes in the state's case. That's their job. They pointed to the alibi witness. They pointed that Doug didn't have a light-colored car or access to one. The only car he drove was his police car. They also pointed to some calculations done on the person in the CCTV footage, using measurements from the van's height, adjusting for camera angle, and doing all of that geometry that most of us haven't touched since the ninth grade, it was determined the person who killed Margo was 5'7 to 5'9. Doug was around 6'2. That is a noticeable difference, even if you have an inch or two on either side of the calculated range. The trial was 12 days of testimony, 52 witnesses, and over 200 pieces of evidence, followed by four hours of jury deliberations. The jury found Doug prayed guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to life in prison with parole eligibility after 26 years. Doug immediately turned around to the courtroom and proclaimed his innocence, and he kept proclaiming it until it caught the attention of the Ohio Innocence Project. Having been convicted on bite mark evidence that even the state's experts didn't 100% agree on was one issue. The other was DNA from the bite mark. Though it couldn't be detected in 1997, DNA technology came a long way very quickly. They spent years petitioning for new DNA tests of the lab coat, before it was finally granted. And when the tests were run, male DNA was found, and it did not belong to Doug Prade. In October 2012, Doug and his appellate attorneys were in front of the judge, arguing that this new DNA evidence was grounds for a new trial. The judge, Judy Hunter, determined that no reasonable juror with the new evidence, would have found Doug guilty, since the evidence was both new and likely to have changed the outcome at trial, she overturned his conviction. A few months later, in January 2013, she went a step further and said the DNA evidence actually exonerated Doug. That immediately saw him released from prison after 15 years. The state appealed the judge's ruling, and foreseeing this, she had made a conditional order that if her ruling to exonerate Doug was overturned, he should still get a new trial. The state argued on appeal that the DNA did not exonerate Doug. There was no saliva on the bite mark in 1997. There was no reason to believe 
that the killer left DNA in that spot. And the male DNA on the coat was not one profile. There were two, and possibly as many as five, partial profiles, which indicated to the state that the DNA was not from the killer, but rather from contamination. In March 2014, the Ohio 9th District Court of Appeals agreed with the state, and they reversed the ruling. They said that Judge Hunter had abused her discretion. They said there was just too much other evidence to support the guilty verdict, and the DNA evidence was not conclusive. They believed a jury would have still found Doug guilty, even if they knew other DNA was on the coat, due to these circumstances, including it having 15 years of being moved and handled. So now Doug's side appealed. In July 2014, the Ohio Supreme Court declined to hear Doug's appeal, so he was taken back into custody since his original guilty conviction and sentence stood. In March 2016, Doug had another appeal based on the DNA, as well as some new information on eyewitness testimony and bite mark analysis. The court ruled that the new info on eyewitness testimony and bite mark analysis was not compelling since Doug's trial attorney did raise the same issues in the trial. Yeah, he didn't have as much research to back it up, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's new evidence since the information is still the same. They had an expert testify to this information. The state also tried to argue that the DNA was similar to the new info on bite mark analysis and eyewitness testimony. It wasn't new evidence. The jury heard at the original trial that Doug's DNA was not found. And now, in 2016, they're saying the same thing. Doug's DNA is not on the lab coat. But even if it was considered new evidence because someone else's DNA was found, it doesn't prove anything. The DNA profiles were so likely to be contamination that, at best, they were inconclusive. The court did find that the DNA was new evidence because the type of testing they used did not exist in 1998, but they agreed with the state that it wouldn't have changed the outcome at the trial because it was inconclusive. It raised more questions than it answered. For one, if saliva has so much DNA in it, which we know is a fact, why did this bite mark only produce 15 cells total? Why were the DNA tests different at different times? One test found no DNA, one found a single profile, one found two partial profiles. So that sounds like contamination was happening between these testing points. However, in the other direction, DNA was not found on other parts of the lab coat tested. So if there was so much handling that this kept getting contaminated, why only that spot? So instead of contaminating the lab code, it sounds like everyone was contaminating the swabs. There's also an issue with the test they used. This test is most accurate if you have at least 150 cells. They had 15. 
the threshold to run the test at all is four cells. So this sample was much closer to the threshold, the bare minimum, than it was to the preferred minimum for accuracy. And then if we go back to 1997, the area tested negative for the enzyme in saliva. So there's no reason to believe the killer left saliva on the jacket. So there's no reason to believe that the DNA found was from the killer. We so often see DNA exoneration cases, DNA-based appeals be so cut and dry. And this is the complete opposite of that. Doug's appeal was denied again, and in November 2019, the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, denied hearing the case. His attorneys have said that they are exploring other options at this point. The thing with an appeal is that once you exhaust one petition, you start over at the very beginning. You don't get fast-tracked to the state Supreme Court. It's possible Doug Prade's parole eligibility, which starts in June 2025, will come before his next chance to be freed on appeal. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.